Hey everybody, my name is Tom Nebel and I'm going to be doing the teaching today. I sort of sensed earlier that when Wayne announced that the pastoral staff was away that a lot of you sort of breathed a, sort of a sense of regret because this would have been the perfect day to skip out because you know you wouldn't have got caught. <laughs> but, uh, you know, instead, now you're here lodged to your seat. If you want to take off now, <laughs> go right ahead. We, we already took the offering. <laughs> so... All right, our pastor has been bringing us through a series uh, called Exchange and talking about the trade-offs that happen because of the cross of Christ and what Jesus has done for us, dying on the cross for our sins, resurrecting to new life. And he's brought, uh, talked about a number of exchanges, such as exchanging death for life and exchanging uh, guilt for freedom been talking about exchanging insignificance for significance and, and that sort of thing. And this week I'm going to wrap up the series. We're going to talk about exchanging... Uh, despair for hope, trade in the, uh, the despair issues of our lives with a real sense of hope and to be, live, be able to live with that resurrected power. Here's a million dollar word for you, excruciating. I, I say that word and I almost feel uh, a tension there excruciating. It's one of those words as you say it, it just feels like the, 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 the tendons are wrapping around one another and it's, it's tough. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of that word about despair. It's when life is excruciating and there are difficulties beyond our imaginations, wondering if we're ever going to see the light of day, wondering if there is that eventual trade-off of despair for hope. When I see a word like that, of course, I try to understand the etymology of it, and I see within that word a number of other words, like cruce, which is a, a Latin um, derivative, and it's, it's leading to somewhere. Um, there's, there's the word crucifix. You know, the, the visual image of Jesus crucified to the cross, or the uh, verbal form of that, to crucify, to be, be uh, pinned to a cross, or we would almost say symbolically, we're crucified when, when things are going badly, they're being poured onto our lives. Crucible, how about that one? The, the idea of something being ground to a pulp uh, in, in the crucible, and sometimes we say in the crucible of life, we are just feeling it, and we wonder if there will ever be a sense of hope, ever going to be a sense of, uh, 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 of a favorable future. Well, could you imagine... The day is coming when everything, because of the cross, which had been broken, is made new. Again, everything which had been broken was fixed. Can you imagine that? Here's what I want you to do. I don't want you just to imagine the day when everything which has been broken will be fixed. I want you to imagine that you don't have to imagine that. Because the Bible, in fact, speaks of that as a truism for those who are following Christ. Everything that has been broken will be fixed. Think about that. What crucible are you in right now? Is it a relational discord, financial setback, an uncertainty for the future, uh, a, a, a medical condition which has just been real? I mean, whatever it is, it can turn your life around so swiftly and I want you to imagine that you don't have to imagine that a day will once come when everything which is broken would be fixed. 
Once in a while, it seems in this life, we get little glimpses of that, those reversals of despair turning to hope. I remember one for me, which is very vibrant and very memorable. It was really one of the, the great moments of my life. It happened at possibly my favorite place, uh, I'm a cheesehead. We have season tickets up at Lambeau Field, and I remember in 2003, it was December 28th, there was a game that a friend and I were attending. He had not been to Lambeau Field before. It was a throwaway game, really, because the Packers were not going to make the playoffs. Uh, it, for, for the Packers to make the playoffs, a whole series of cataclysmic things would have had to have happened. They would have had to beat the Denver Broncos that day, which they were going to do, because some of you will remember Mike Shanahan, the coach of the Broncos, said, we're not going to play our starters. They just did it in a symbolic way, sort of pulled them away, and the Packers ended up winning that game 31-3. to So it was kind of one of those moments where, where, where it's a little bit of a throwaway game and you're talking, well, wait till next year and, and some of that kind of stuff. And for me, it was personally fun because um, I'm not a Denver Broncos fan. I went to graduate school in Denver. I don't like the Broncos. Maybe you're a Broncos fan. That's fine. I mean, Jesus loves you as well. And it's not a, a big thing. But, you know, actually, one of, like, like on those online security questions you have to answer to get into your accounts, when they ask, what team do you always want to see lose? For me, it's... Denver Broncos. So I enjoyed that. One of my other security questions, what's your favorite animal? Steak. <laughs> Has nothing to do with the message. I just wanted you to hear that. <laughs> so Packers are winning. Well, for, for them to make it into the playoffs, another crazy scenario had to unfold. The Minnesota Vikings, who were having a very good season that year were slated for the playoffs all they had to do was beat the lowly Arizona Cardinals in Arizona that day it was a simple thing the bets were certainly strong in the favor of the Vikings and we just assumed that would be the case but a lot of the cheeseheads there up at Lambeau Field that day were wearing these little earbuds listening to radios and listening not just to the Packers broadcast but once in a while the flagship station of the Packers would sort of dip in and tell you something that was happening in Arizona and well could it be no it can't no it, it could it no, no, no. I mean, no, it can't. Well, they're getting down to the end of the game, and some of you will remember, and I'll bet some of you were even there up at Lambeau Field then, but it appeared that the game was closer than anyone anticipated. All that would have had to happen now, there was virtually no time left on the clock. It was fourth and 23. Arizona, Jake McCowan, the quarterback, had the ball, and all he had to do was, was well, all the Vikings had to do was shut him down. It was 4th and 23. There was no way that they could win the game. Uh, the Cardinals would. All the Vikings had to do was shut them down. But this Jake McCollum threw a touchdown pass to Nate Poole, and uh, they ended up winning the game. Well, you see, if you were there in the stadium that day, was anybody there, you know, anybody there skipping out on church that day? Yes, I see that hand. And uh, you'll remember a lot of these people are listening to the broadcast and what the flagship station of the Packers did was they actually cut away to listen to the last play of the Vikings game in Arizona, which sounded like this. Get back, guys. Here it is. The season's on the line. Two receivers left and right. McCown takes the snap. He steps up. He's all by himself. Fires into the end zone. Caught! Touchdown! No! No! The Cardinals have knocked the Vikings out of the playoffs! <laughs> oh, to be at Lambeau Field, and now you might be a Vikings fan, and actually this, this message about hope from despair will really apply for you. But, but, 
to be at Lambeau Field that moment when people on the radios were hearing what had happened and it just rippled across the stadium, this cheer out of nowhere, which made no sense relative to the game that was going on. And then the players were picking up on what had happened and it was absolutely the greatest moment of, well, okay, there was the wedding. <laughs> and the birth of the, yeah, and, uh, and then the number two. So, so it, it was the fourth greatest moment of my life. Oh, and we laughed and we laughed and we laughed because there's part of you feeling sorry for the Vikings fans because that this kind of routine, that sort of despair from hope kind of stuff. But it was just, we laughed and we laughed and we laughed and we high-fived and on the way out of the stadium, it was just unbelievable. It was one of those scenes where, at least from our perspective, as the chief says, everything that had been broken was fixed. And I want you to imagine that you don't have to imagine the day when everything which was broken would be fixed because as a Christ follower, the reality is that will happen and with that as a backdrop, we can exchange our, 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 our levels of despair for a genuine sense of hope. Well, we're going to do that this morning by turning to the back of the book. We're going to turn to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And if you don't have your own Bible here, you just pick up one near you. Sure, you can look up the page number, 878, but it's a whole lot easier just to page back because all they got is some blank pages and then the table of weights and measures. I don't know who came up with that one, you know. Why didn't they put like the local cable television channels or something? But instead they give us weights and measures. Then you're going to get to chapters 22 and 21. And in chapter 21, what we have now is this John, this apostle, this best friend of Jesus, is now going to be giving us a glimpse of the fundamental reality which awaits those who are Christ followers. Revelation is a puzzling book, and a lot of people get off on this thing like it's some sort of a crystal ball. John, you need to know, was at this time exiled to an island called Patmos. As a matter of fact, if you look at this map here, uh, there's, there's Greece and uh, Turkey, which is uh, at that time known as Asia Minor, and then you got all these islands in the Aegean Sea, and then here's a little blown up picture where you see Rhodes, which was over here, and then these islands going north of there. You see a series of islands, and you come up to one called Patmos, which would have been approximately over here in Asia Minor. John is in exile. Folks, if you're in exile, it generally means things aren't going really so hot right about now. Because there was a, a backdrop of a context of, of, of very wicked things happening to Christ followers in that first century. You've maybe heard of the uh, Emperor Nero and the Emperor Domitian. Just did terrible, terrible things. And John ended up on this outpost away from it all and was writing this book based on a revelation he had received from the Lord. And some people take this revelation as, as being a futuristic uh, moniker from, from which we are to uh, uh, gaze into the crystal ball and know how all things are going to work out. Could be. There's a lot of ways to interpret the book of Revelation. In fact, this last week I asked our pastor, I said, hey, what, what sort of theological constructs do you have? I mean, the book of Revelation is a very confusing book to read. What sort of theological constructs do you use as you're interpreting the book? And I'll never forget, never forget what he said. He said, eh, eh, eh. 
there is a view called the preterist view, which means that all that John was writing was about that day and age. A little bit, we're going to read about Jerusalem, which had been ransacked and torn down. So when he writes about the new Jerusalem, he's writing about, hey, this thing's going to get fixed up. And, he, and he's writing in a cryptic way for people to understand that uh, God is still in control, which is, as a matter of fact, true. But some people take an overly aggressive view of this book and see it as this crystal ball, and you run into people from time to time who are going to tell you the exact times and the dates and how everything is going to conclude and what this means and what that means and when Jesus is going to return and they sort of have the corner on the market. And uh, I'm just telling you that's not how I jump into this book. But I remember years back I had been a pastor at one time, 1988, there was a very well-meaning, sincere Bible reading person who determined that Jesus was going to be returning in 1988. And, and he had it all mapped out and all figured out. And he had it pretty much figured out. And he was referring to, a, it's a, not a biblical term, but it's a term that describes how some people think things are going to work out, which is, it's a term called the rapture. And the title of his book was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Okay, so... Those were out everywhere. I got one in the mail and looked at it and kind of paged through it and said, well, okay, we'll see. Well, of course, it didn't happen in 88, so he came out with a new version of the book, which basically was the I missed by one year version. <laughs> so it was supposed to happen in September of 89, and he had the exact date down, and that date came and went, and I decided the day after to phone the office. And I don't think I was being a jerk. Well, okay, I was being a jerk. And, but I, I just wanted to talk to this person and say, what, you know, I mean, the, the scriptures elsewhere teach us to not predict. But um, I called and talked to the lady who answered the phone, and I said, well? And she says, well? I said, well? She said, well, do you mean did it happen? And I said, yeah. And she says, no, we're all still here. And, and I'm, I'm thinking sometimes we... we, we put ourselves in positions of extreme vulnerability when we over-interpret things in a way that was never intended. But you cannot miss the fact that when you get to chapters 21 and chapters 22, this apostle John wants us to have hope that the day is coming when all that has been broken will be fixed. And he says it in a beautifully poetic way, a way that gives me great encouragement. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things is passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. And the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, 
and he will be my son. Incredibly encouraging things that remind us of the beauty of the coming day. He describes the days of no tears. The capacity to cry is no longer evident because all has been made new. He talks about the new Jerusalem. Again, this, this sense of that, that all the destruction and the mayhem that we have seen is no longer relevant because it's all been made new. And he talks about those who are the overcomers. He says, I am the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, the last letter of the alphabet. He says, I'm the whole thing. I got this thing covered. And, uh, and, and he even symbolically says, I'll give to drink without cost the spring of life with the encouragement to overcome. Well, this whole book of Revelation, written by John in exile, and he's writing to people that they may gain hope. If you were to turn to chapter 1 of Revelation, you're welcome to do it. I'm not going to read from there, but if you read the first few verses, you will see that John says something that is both encouraging and to me a little bit upsetting. He says, I'm writing this revelation to you about the things which will come soon. Every time I see that word soon in the Bible, I wonder what calendar they're operating by. Because this is 2,000 years old, this writing. He's talking about things that are coming soon. He goes on and describes great destruction and, 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 and mayhem that is coming or has come upon the earth and upon our very lives almost in a metaphorical way. And it talks about all the dust and the dirt and the confusion that is churned up in this book of Revelation. And then when we get to chapters 21 and 22, there's almost a glimpse of the new life. J.B. Moffat, James Moffat, the Bible scholar and the uh, author, the, the one who actually interpreted the, the Bible, it was called the, the, the Moffat Translation. Here's what he says about chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. He says, From the smoke and pain and heat of the preceding scenes, it is a relief to pass into the clear, clean atmosphere of the eternal morning where the breath of heaven is sweet, and the vast city of God sparkles like a diamond in the radiance of his presence. It's that, it's that 4th and 23 moment. It's that moment when all that was broken was made well. You just breathe it in, Moffat says. That's the... That's the reality of the future for the Christ follower. And yet, I still have to tell you, I'm a little unnerved by the fact that this is stuff that is soon to come. Because you see, I'm not so good with soon. I'm pretty good with now. I'm not so good with soon. And life is just drudgery sometimes. And it is pain beyond anything you ever signed up for. This unimaginable, unimaginable torture from time to time. And the encouraging writers of the Bible want us to have hope so they remind us about things that are to come soon. And sometimes I'm just not good for soon. I, I'm good for now, but not soon. 
This guy goes in to see the psychiatrist. He says, Doc, I'm really goofed up. He says, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. He says, uh, well, what you got? He says, well, I got this recurring dream, and it just won't go away. And he says, I don't know, but it's bothering me, and maybe you can make sense of it. The doctor says, well, tell me about it. He says, well, okay, it's like an Old West scene, and I'm riding real fast on a horse, and I'm, 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 I'm going just at breakneck speed down this dusty road, and the nostrils are flared wide open of the horse, and we're just galloping along, and the dust is rolling back. And he says, we come upon a stagecoach. We're just neck and neck with the stagecoach. And, and, and he says, I, we're going along, and, and you wonder what's going to happen. And I look over in my dream, and I see the handle for the stagecoach, and I reach out in the, the door, and I open it, and I jump in, and I close the door. And then I look on the other side, there's another horse that's just galloping along at the same speed, no rider on it. So he says, I open up the door on the other side, and I jump on that horse. He says, Doc, I just don't know what that means. And the doc says, well, I think it's just a stage you're going through. That's kind of how it is. It, there, there's, there's kind of a sense that this is a stage we're going through. And right now, we'd like it to be resolved. The best we're going to get is soon. A few weeks ago, Pastor was talking about people who have near-death experiences, and uh, you know, some we don't know what to make sense of. Uh, there's some consistencies, there's some inconsistencies, and, and and whether or not you know they're they're what they say, we don't really know. But a few years ago, I picked up this book in an airport. It was written by a by a guy named Don Piper. He's a pastor, and I figured, well, he can't be a nutcase. He's a pastor, <laughs> and. Uh, he, he, he's writing about a, a genuine near-death experience that he had gone through. was on the way back from a conference in Texas back in uh, January of 1989 where he was killed in a terrible car accident on a bridge where a truck had pinned him in. And uh, he was pronounced dead for 90 minutes before they were able to... to it was beyond that before they were able to pry the body out with the jaws of life and everything. But, but he, he's, he's dead. They've, they've verified that. And along comes another pastor driving along, wonders what happened, and, and feels like he's supposed to go pray for this guy. And the technicians in there, the EMTs, they say, go ahead. And he sneaks through the back, puts his hand on his shoulders, on Don Piper's shoulders, and he just prays for him. And he comes back to life. Now, I'm a big fan of laying hands on and praying for people. Because I figure it can't hurt. And sometimes the Lord does come through as we pray. Well, in this case, it did. Most of this book is about how this Don Piper wished that that hadn't happened, that he hadn't come back because he had this 90-minute experience from others' watches that he recounted in this book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. Just a, a few thoughts of what he describes, what it was like when he was on the other shore. He says... Everything I experienced was like a first-class buffet for the senses. I'd never felt such powerful embraces or feasted my eyes on such beauty. Heaven's light and texture defy earthly eyes or explanation. Warm, radiant light engulfed me. As I looked around, I could hardly grasp the vivid, dazzling colors. Every hue and tone surpassed anything I'd ever seen. With all the heightened awareness of my senses, I felt as if I had never seen or heard or felt anything so real before. I don't recall that I tasted anything, yet I know that if I had, that too would have been more glorious than anything I had eaten or drunk on earth. 
The best way I can explain it is to say that I felt as if I were in another dimension. Never in my happiest moments had I ever felt so fully alive. I stood speechless in front of the crowd of loved ones, still trying to take in everything. Over and over I heard how overjoyed they were to see me and how excited they were to have me among them. I'm not sure if they actually said the words or not, but I knew they had been waiting and expecting me, yet I knew that in heaven there's no true sense of time passing. So a few other things. Just, age expresses time in passing, yet there's no time there. All the people I encountered were the same age as they had been the last time I had seen them, except that all the ravages of living on earth had vanished. Even though some of their features may not have been considered attractive on earth, in heaven every feature was perfect, beautiful, and wonderful to gaze at. He's saying, like, let's say someone in this life were short, Even now, years later, I can sometimes close my eyes and see those perfect countenances and smiles that surprised me with the most human warmth and friendliness I've ever witnessed. Just being with them was a holy moment and it remains a treasured hope. When I first stood in heaven, they were still in front of me and came rushing toward me. They embraced me and no matter which direction I looked, I saw someone I had loved and who had loved me. They surrounded me, moving around so that everyone had a chance to welcome me to heaven. I felt loved, more loved than anything ever before in my life. They didn't say they loved me. I don't remember any words they spoke. When they gazed at me, I knew what the Bible means by perfect love. It emanated from every person who surrounded me. I stared at them as I did. I felt as if I was absorbed in their love for me. At some point, I looked around and the sight overwhelmed me. Everything was brilliantly intense. Coming out from the gate a short distance ahead was a brilliance that was brighter than the light that surrounded us, utterly luminous. As I looked, I stopped gazing at people's faces. I realized that everything around me glowed and dazzled in intensity. And trying to describe the scene, words are totally inadequate because human words can't express the feeling of awe and wonder at what I beheld. Maybe that's a little bit about what John is dealing with. Human words can't quite express what this would look like. The day is coming when everything which was broken was then again fixed. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not be need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. 
you want to know why life is just so difficult sometimes with mayhem and destruction and discord and pain? Do you know why that is the case? It's because you were not made to live in a fallen world. You were made to live in a perfect world, but you live in a fallen world. You know, some people think of us as human beings on a spiritual journey. The Bible teaches that we are, in fact, spiritual beings on a human journey. And we were not made to live in a fallen world. So to me, the most powerful verse of what we just read is verse 3, where it says what? No longer will there be any curse. This earth is cursed. We are all victims of the, of the shrapnel of that curse. And the day is coming when there no longer will be any curse. Everything which was broken will have been fixed. And then, of course, you read the very end of what I just read, verse 6, and we see that terror word again. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show these servants the things that must soon take place. And I'm thinking to myself, sometimes I'm just really tired of soon. But not completely. I, I like watching those uh, those shows on TV, like those. Uh, have you ever seen this one called uh, Ten Years Younger or something like that? You know, they, they they do the makeovers, trade out the clothes, put on the good stuff, trade out the teeth, put on the good teeth. You know, and uh, I, I like the shows. Well, actually, I don't like the middle of the show. I like the beginning, but I really don't want a full hour to wait what she looks to see what she looks like at the end. I just want to see, look like this, wow. Okay, that's the part I like, the look like this and the wow. So I would enjoy that show even more if they would kind of fast forward, get rid of soon and give me now. But all of this as Christ followers falls under a category of a theological construct that is fundamental and foundational to what we believe. The theological construct is what? It's called sovereignty. It means that God is in charge and in control of it all. And I think for most of us as Christ followers, we do have future hope. We anticipate the day when all that was broken will be fixed. And, and, and we, we resonate with that very thought. What sovereignty causes us to do, though, is something beyond that. Not just to have hope for the future. Not just to have faith for what is to come, but have faith for our past to trust that God was still there in all the perceived mistakes and all the perceived terror and all the perceived abuse and all that that has happened, all the horror that has come upon us. Christ followers, under the banner of sovereignty, we have faith for the past. We say, all right, I'm okay. And that's why the teaching of this text and so many like them is, is a teaching that, that fundamentally wraps up this issue of, of having hope out of despair. It's a simple reality that until soon becomes now, I'm okay. I think somebody here just needed to be reminded of that. That until soon becomes now, I'm okay. Cursed world, just bring it on. What's the worst you can do to me? Just bring it on. Because until soon becomes now, 
I'm okay. And that's true for you if you're a follower of Christ. And maybe you just got to buck up one more time. Maybe you got to pull it together and just live by the reality that until soon becomes now you're okay. That day when the, 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 the world is more real than anything you could have ever imagined. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, talks about this character who's given an option to take a bus ride from hell to heaven. When he gets to heaven, he can't stand it because it's so real. The fruit is heavy on the trees. He can't even hold it. The grass is so sharp he can't walk on it. He finally decides to leave. But God invites us to a reality that is much more real than the reality we current experience. And Christ followers can live with that hope and say with a firm resolve that until soon becomes now, I'm okay. And that goes to you who are in the crucible of it all right now. And to those of you who are experiencing excruciating realities right now, well, guess what? Till soon becomes now. I'm okay. Back in the 18th century, there was a, another Christ follower. His name was John Todd. He grew up in Virginia at a, at a tragedy at age six. Uh, family house burned down. He lost everything, including his parents, and he was orphaned. And as they would do with kids in those days, they'd parcel them out to relatives that would take him. His aunt took him. She lived about 20-some miles away. When the news came, she sent her servant, Caesar, on a horse to go pick up John Todd and to bring him back to his new home. Well, John Todd was raised by that woman, came to know Christ, Resolved to serve Christ to the point he became a clergyman and, and was known as a judge in those days and uh, later on in her years as she was going through it all. When life was excruciating, going through a painful death, wondering about all this hope that we talk about and think about and, and, and what's to come and, and will it all be made new, she writes to John Todd seeking encouragement and her nephew John Todd writes back the following. It is now 35 years since I as a boy of six was left quite alone in the world. You sent me word that you would give me a home, be a kind mother to me. I've never forgotten the day I made the long journey to your house. I can still recall my disappointment when instead of coming for me yourself, you sent your servant Caesar to fetch me. I remember my tears and anxiety as, perched high on your horse and clinging tight to Caesar, I rode off to my new home. Night fell before we finished the journey, and I became lonely and afraid. Do you think she'll go to bed before we get there? I asked Caesar. Oh, no, he said reassuringly. She'll stay up for you. When we get out of these here woods, you'll see her candle is shining in the window. Presently, we did ride out into the clearing, and there, sure enough, was your candle. I remember you were waiting at the door that you put your arms close about me, a tired and bewildered little boy. You had a fire burning on the hearth, a hot supper waiting on the stove. After supper, you took me to my new room, heard me say my prayers, and sat down beside me till I fell asleep. Someday soon, Auntie, God will send to you to take you to a new home. Don't fear the summons, the strange journey, or the messenger of death. God can be trusted to do as much for you as you were kind enough to do for me so many years ago. At the end of the road, you will find love and a welcome awaiting. 
and you'll be safe in God's care.